questions. And he answers. And he rags, and he bones, and he bottles today, and he rags. Welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 8, Gentlemen, Question Mark. This is a very special episode, and we'll tell you why, but let's meet your hosts. First, he blew over from the Windy City to the American Northeast with a song in his heart and a Cubs cap on his head. Pop culture vulture, history detective, media manipulator, world-class kibitzer, and the author of Zero Vegan Cookbooks, Mr. Bob Gassell. Hi, everybody. Hi, Noah. Hi, Matthew. I hope I could live up to all that. Next up, from the other side of the Atlantic auction, the darling of the Somerset Smart Set, the Bath Matt, the Englishman who went up a hill and came down with double pneumonia. He's double-crossed us. He's coming by land and sea. The annotated Matthew Conium. Thank you very much. Yes, it's me again, as British as ever I was, and I'm going to be recording the entirety of tonight's podcast, hanging upside down from the ceiling, as my tribute to Eve Arden. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, from here in the city that never sleeps, or even just lies down and closes its eyes for a few minutes, the precocious musical theater writer who lives in Washington Heights and did not write an award-winning hip-hop musical about Alexander Hamilton... (laughs) That's me, Noah Diamond. Well, as you may know, we decided that the content of Episode 8 was far too important to leave it all in the hands of such unsavory characters as your three hosts. For that reason, and also because we couldn't think of anything else, we decided to leave it all up to you, of all people. And over the past month... On the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group and our blog and elsewhere, we have asked for your questions and statements and challenges and points to respond to and whatever else may have been on your minds. And over the next hour or so, we will respond to this stack of pancakes. Hmm. And thank you sincerely to our listeners and council members for providing us with the fodder for this episode. So did anyone reply? No, we didn't get any questions at all. Ah. But we'll just have to make some up. Uh, We actually did. We got quite a stack of questions. In fact, we could probably do two or three episodes on the questions we got in. Um, But uh, just to get the ball rolling on this episode, uh, Senor Pastrami, what is the first number? Question number one. (laughs) And this comes from somebody who did not leave their name, and we want to thank you for that. The question (laughs) is, did the Marx Brothers films ever jump the shark? If so, when? And if not, did they jump the seal? And if so, where's the seal? 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 You know, I think uh, most Marx fans would put it in the same general vicinity, and I think there's three candidates. So let's go through each of them. First, let's go to uh, A Day at the Races. It's a pretty much unanimous opinion that A Day at the Races is not quite as good as A Night at the Opera. But I think most Marx fans who saw it came away satisfied. And, you know, it had been a year or two since the opera had come out. And I think uh, not many people noticed the difference. They enjoyed it pretty much pretty much as much as they did the, the previous film. Next is Room Service. And uh, I think it's pretty much a common opinion that Room Service is quite a drop-off from their previous work. But you know what? It wasn't written for the Marxes. It was a very experimental project. And, 
you know what, it's an outlier, and I, I think I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt here and not include that. And I think people who saw the film knew that it was a hit play without the Marxists, so I don't think people uh, really blame the Marxists for its uh, relative uh, failure. Now we come to At the Circus, and I believe this is the one where Marx fans came away saying, you know what, maybe the Marxists aren't quite on the top of their game anymore. This is not uh, their best work. And, you know, it's it's still a good film. There's still plenty of laughs, but I can't imagine anybody saying uh, that this was anywhere near their best work or can be compared to their best work. So, Trumping the Shark, I'm going to go with At the Circus, though you can make a case for several of the others that I mentioned earlier. And maybe we should say, just for anyone who who may not know the expression, uh, Jump the Shark refers to the fifth season premiere of Happy Days in 1977, in which Henry Winkler, as Fonzie, water skied over a shark. And it was thought that that was the moment when Happy Days strayed so far from its original pres- uh, premise and essence that uh, that it was no longer really the show everyone signed on for. Um, in that sense, it's interesting. It, it, it would suggest that jump, to jump the shark is to do something so uncharacteristic that you have seeded your identity. You've sort of given up the thing that made the fans love you in the first place. What about you, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't think so much in terms of specific films or specific moments. I think, I think there are kind of, there are lines uh, where you, that stick in the memory as signposts, you know, towards... Uh, oblivion that noise you can hear by the way is bob gassell eating a chocolate brownie unwrapping a chocolate brownie and there he is there he is enjoying it Mm. don't you wish you were enjoying one too (laughs) um but yes so lines like you know there goes our last chance of helping those kids or um the the wonderful one in at the circus uh yours truly who could certainly use the money for jeff um but i think the first (laughs) one that the first one that really hits you, I think, is in A Day at the Races, which is when uh, when Maureen O'Sullivan looks looks at Groucho and says, silly. I think that's, yeah. that's, that's the turning point, I think. And, of course, there are going to be some people who will say Night at the Opera is the moment the Marxists jumped the shark. And while I could sort of understand that mindset of people who are married to the uh, Paramount uh, uh, attitude, the fact is that A Night at the Opera was just a total success by every measurable standard, and the Marxists and Thalberg totally succeeded in everything they were trying to do with the film. So it's hard to criticize the accomplishment. The uh, moments in A Night at the Opera that might be candidates would be things like Groucho getting kicked down the stairs or the park bench scene. But um, I don't know. It, it's interesting because the term jumping the shark it seems to imply a certain outrageousness, like having to reach so far for new ideas that you stray into just the absurd. That's what happened in the case of Happy Days. But the Marx Brothers, in a sense, built their entire career on yes. jumping the shark. It's almost it's almost when they stopped jumping the shark, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there a shark in, in any Marx Brothers film? That's, I've been trying to figure that out in my mind for the last couple of minutes. I don't think there is. Maybe that's why our questioner uses the seal. Um, all right. You got a question, Matthew, that you'd like to throw into the mix? Okay. Yeah, this one is uh, from Vico Suvanto. Um, it's quite long, so feel free to go and put the So that's how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Vico, oh. well, Vico or Suvanto. Uh, certainly okay. Vico. I, I, he told me that to my face. I, I met the man. And I said, is it Vico or Vico? And he said, Vico. So it is Vico. And I assume it's Suvanto. And he says, here's my question, or rather questions, to all three of you. So listen up. 
Uh, how constant and unchanged has your love for the Marx Brothers been since you discovered the team and fell in love with them? Have there been moments or longer periods where you thought that maybe they weren't as funny as you once thought them to be? Or have you ever put them aside for other pursuits so that, for example, a year would have passed without watching a single Marx Brothers film or giving much thought to them? Or if none of that has ever happened, has your relationship to the team changed in other ways in terms of favourite film, favourite brother, the thing you appreciate the most in their comedy, etc.? And my answer to that is, I don't know. No, no, it's not. No, no, um, no. My answer to that is um, basically, uh, I probably have, you know, subtly changed my opinion on what my favorite film was or the thing, you know, the, the, my favorite bits and pieces and whatever. But my my uh, unstinting and undying adoration of the team uh, has never changed from from the twenty third of December nineteen eighty three to present. And I think the reason for that is. I don't really think of them as as examples of something else that I like. They they they're not really my favorite screen comedians. They they're something else. They're the Marx Brothers. And certainly my uh my interest in movies has kind of ebbed and waned over the years. There was long long periods in in my my 20s where I didn't think much about films and I was interested in other things and and whatever mm -hmm. but uh the Marx Brothers were always something separate uh yes they are my favorite comedians but but they're also something else they're they're a category all to themselves and there has never been a time when I didn't love the Marx Brothers or 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 think of them as a kind of a touchstone I suppose the only sort of eccentricity in my view is that uh, there certainly has been times when a year has gone by where I haven't watched their films uh, I think apart from when I see them in the cinema once in a while or when I was watching them as research for my books I actually hardly ever watched their films at all I genuinely can't think of the last time when I sat down and watched one for the sake of it they're sort of already inside me I've absorbed them they're part of me and I very rarely put them on just uh, just to watch I agree I I really enjoy uh, the opportunities I get to watch them in public you know in a theater you know with people who haven't seen the films uh, I like doing backyard screenings and a lot of times we'll have a lot of kids that haven't seen the films before and even when you know the lines even when you know what's happening it's just a thrill to watch with other fans yeah. and with people yeah. watching them for the first time yeah, I I don't think since the age of 12, I don't think I've gone a year without watching at least one Marx Brothers movie, probably more than that. Often in the past, it's been something I do for comfort, the cinematic equivalent of comfort food, mm -hmm. when I want to just feel good and sort of be reminded of who I am and what's important to me, um, putting on a Marx Brothers movie. It's almost like hearing your family's voices when you were a little kid, you know, falling asleep and hearing the voices in the house that just told you you were home. Um, it's given me that feeling. I don't think there's been any lessening in my appreciation of them over the years. But over the last 10 years, um, it, there has been an intensifying of how much time I spent thinking about them. Um, because in the last 10 years since I started working on the I'll Say She Is project and got involved with Marx Fest and for a while the 93rd Street Beautification Association and uh, and the Marx Brothers Council, they've moved to the center of my public life, my creative life. Um, and throughout my 20s, although I loved the Marx Brothers and felt influenced by them in lots of things I did, uh, I was more concerned about 
um, being a political satirist. And a lot of my work then had to do with New York City history and only incidentally involved the Marx Brothers. So if anything, I just get in deeper and deeper. Oh, sounds like they're coming to get you, Noah. Yeah, there's you hear those sirens. Yes, it's uh, it's just a typical day in Washington Heights. It's because you said political satire. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they heard you. My name is on a list somewhere. They heard you. I find myself acting as a student of the Marx Brothers these days, uh, oftentimes more than as a fan. And yeah. because of that, I end up watching some of the films that I don't care for so much. Uh, I guess it's because I'm trying to look for what the problem was and what went wrong. And as I'm learning more and more about these films, I could actually go back and study, you know, the lines and the directing and say, oh, yeah, here's where the here's where the missteps were. I used to live with the guy um, when I was a, a kid, the, the, my, my other friend who liked the Marx Brothers, uh, who's you know my oldest friend uh, and my best man at my wedding. Um, I lived with him for a while and he his his opinion was he didn't want to watch them too often because he didn't want the magic to, to, to wear off. He didn't want to get to the point that I've long since passed where mm-hmm. I could just recite them just as easily. So he would very carefully ration them. So he would if he wanted to just sit down and watch one just for fun, he would watch one that he wasn't so keen on. And in actual fact, we used to watch Go West a lot. We watched Go West over and over again together because that was the one that didn't matter. It just didn't matter if that one got got uh, spoiled through through uh, through overuse. So we used to just sit and watch that film a great deal. So I'm, uh, that's why I'm so familiar with that film is because we used to watch it a hell of a lot as you know just just uh, as a kind of a late evening uh, relaxation. Isn't that interesting? All, all three of us have a version of that syndrome. Because I, too, I find if I watch their lesser movies, sometimes I, I wind up laughing more because I don't know those movies as well. You know, all those years where I would just put the Marx Brothers on in order to feel at home, uh, of course, I would put on one of my favorites. And so those, you know, the first five, six films are the ones I've seen over and over and over again. Uh, whereas the big store, you know, if I put it on, there are gags in it that I don't remember and that can take me by surprise. Yeah, and that's why Casablanca, Night in Casablanca is so, is so sacred to me because it's the only one that I really, really like that I don't know what the next line is going to be every time. I've only seen yeah. it a few times and it's, it's, the, it's literally the only one that I can't just recite along with it uh, that, I, that, I, that I really... Right. This next question is from Bob Hunt. Bob Hunt asks, does anyone else see the influence of the Marx Brothers on Harvey Kurtzman's Mad, the original comic book, which itself influenced generations of humorists in various genres? As an example, when viewing the cigar interrogation scene in At the Circus and Harpo extends a foot into the frame with a long lighted match. I cannot help but think of mad artist Will Elder's penchant for cramming the comic book frame with surreal gags. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. I think there's a very obvious influence of the Marx Brothers on Mad Comics and also on Mad Magazine, into which Mad Comics evolved. And yeah, that's very astute. That is a very Will Elder kind of gag, just the foot in the corner of the frame with the lighted match. But even beyond that, I think the I think Mad Magazine was the second place where I ever encountered the Marx Brothers. I knew them first from Joe Adamson's book, which was on my parents' shelves when I was uh, a very small child. 
But then I think I was maybe eight years old when my father decided I was ready for Mad Magazine. And the Marx Brothers popped up a lot in those pages. Sometimes they'd be like hidden in a crowd scene or in Dave Berg's comics in Mad Magazine, which were called The Lighter Side of dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a character named Mr. Kaputnik. Who Roger. always yeah. was, yeah, he, his doctor was Groucho, basically, a Groucho caricature. Um, and there's something about the mad mentality that is very much of a piece with, with Marxism. And Art Spiegelman, who was a disciple of Harvey Kurtzman and um, who was profoundly influenced by mad comics, uh, he characterized the mad ethos as the adult world is lying to you and we at mad are part of that adult world. And that's also a very good description of the Marx Brothers <laughs> yeah. ethos. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all a big swindle and get we're part of it. Who are you going to believe me or your own eyes? <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, Bob, if you reached into your bag of questions, what would you come up with now? Okay, here's one. This is a good one. Which Marx Brothers movie, apart from those that began as stage productions, which would make the best play slash musical? Well, that one's fairly easy for me. I, I would go with Duck Soup. I think that would make a great uh, stage production. You know, Monkey Business and Horse Feathers uh, have quite a bit of uh, movement and action. And, you know, they obviously they could have been adapted. But I think Duck Soup would have worked really good on, on the stage. You know, the opening scene is obviously very stage bound. And there's not a lot of physical action that couldn't be reproduced on stage. And the ending, I think, could have worked very well in a Broadway show. So Duck Soup's the one for me. Yeah, I agree with you, Bob. I, I think Monkey Business might be a runner-up for me. And as we discussed in our previous episode, the idea of seeing that very first scene with the captain in one in front of the curtain and then having the curtain open on a fully realized set of the cargo hold with the barrels and the singing, that would be beautiful. Mm-hmm. But I think I would, I would, by a hair, choose Duck Soup. And I think when we talk about Animal Crackers and Coconuts as being very static and Monkey Business, Horse Feathers and Duck Soup as having all this cinematic movement. Uh, We're discussing them in 1930s terms. Uh, Today, of course, you know, the average Broadway musical um, is much more cinematic now than than Monkey Business is. Mm -hmm. And that's been going on since Rodgers and Hammerstein in the 40s, stage pieces that have cinematic techniques and the stage equivalent of wipes and dissolves and short scenes in many locations. So there's no longer any of that kind of barrier to Mm -hmm. what would make a good stage piece versus a film. Um, Nevertheless, Duck Soup, you know, Stephen Sondheim says you shouldn't adapt a work unless you think you can improve it. And Duck Soup does have a lot of room for improvement in the specific areas that you would have to work on to turn it into a stage piece. And there's so much great source material. You know, you could bring in material from the Cracked Ice Mm -hmm. screenplay, Mm -hmm. and you could also raid the Flywheel scripts, which, of course, they did for the screenplay of Duck Soup. You know, you could just take more Flywheel stuff um, and beef up some of those dialogue scenes in, in Duck Soup. And you could also interpolate lots of Kalmar and Ruby songs and, and really give it a score. And of course, they have those, yeah, they have the built in big production numbers already. Yeah, you could reinstate, uh, keep on doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. The Big Bad Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could put that back yeah. in. 
I think they should have turned room service into a play. <laughs> oh, surely. <laughs> no, I'm being silly. Now, how about Love Happy? How about you, you get rid of all that Harpo stuff? I, I want to see that show, <laughs> don't you? With the... Um, Meryl Monroe uh, show? The, the Sadie Thompson number and, yeah. uh, you know, that guy tap dancing. I want to see that show. <laughs> no, Duck Soup. Yes, I agree. Duck Soup is the answer. Yes. Um, all right. By three to zero, the, the motion passes. Duck Soup. <laughs> okay, this one is from, from Jack uh, Lechner or Lechner or Lechner. I'm not sure what. Uh, but he says, what... <laughs> What non-Marx screen comedy team comes the closest to scratching the unique itch that only primo Marx can scratch? Um, and I, I certainly endorse the use of the word unique there because, the, you know, the, the, the basic, the simple short answer is nobody. Um, exactly. the, yeah. the, the itch is the itch is a unique one. Um, I can't think of anybody that 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 comes close to uh, to to uh, fully fully scratching that itch i think if you if you strip it down to to constituent parts i would say that probably wheeler and wolsey come closest to giving you the atmosphere of a marx film if you just love love that particular uh you know feeling that that you get from watching a marx brothers movie the wheeler and wolsey films from around the same era sort of uh, give you a good a, a good reproduction of that in terms of their uniqueness of the humor, the wit, the sophistication, I think I think nobody has ever come close, with the exception of of Fields. I, I think Fields, uh, with his uh, brilliant combination of of uh, characterization and and social observation and absurd humor, um, is is your best bet there. In terms of the energy of a Marx Brothers film, I would um, nominate a British. Uh, comedy team. British comedy of the 1930s is still a relatively unexplored area, even here, or even especially here, perhaps. Um, but it's peopled with really, really great comedians. People like George Formby Jr., Arthur Askey, Will Hay, um, or in this case, uh, the Crazy Gang, who were a, mm. a sextet, uh, rather interestingly comprised of three double acts. Um, the most famous now, I guess, is, is Flanagan and Allen. The others were Nervo and Knox and Norton and Gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they could and did work separately. But when they got together as the Crazy Gang, all six of them, they had an incredible kinetic energy. And in particular, uh, there's a film called OK for Sound, which is uh, from 1937, I think, more or less plotless. Uh, it's a series of review sketches, basically. But the thread is the six of them wangle, the way, wangle their way into a film studio and cause chaos there. Uh, and w- when all six of them are, are, are you know, going at it together, you get something of the, of the energy of the Marx Brothers uh, in monkey business on board the ship. That, that incredible breathless energy, um, I think. Uh, so if you could put the crazy gang... Wheeler and Woolsey and W.C. Fields together, you'd get a vague approximation of the magic of the Marx Brothers. No one's going to say Rowan and Martin? No? <laughs> no? I know this will be a bit of a stretch, but the only act for me that approaches the Marxists in terms of a variety of humor is uh, Monty Python. I think they're able to do uh, puns, silly walks, uh, sharp satire, physical humor, and they're able to weave it and blend it and go back and forth. And it's really quite remarkable. 
Now, I wouldn't uh, call any specific gag or film of theirs uh, comparable to what the Marxists did, but I just really think the blend of uh, different types of humor is there. I find certainly, I agree, the Marx Brothers are sui generis, and although I do love lots of other vintage comedy acts, you know, comparing the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges is like comparing William Shakespeare and the Three Stooges. But I... (laughs) But I think the entertainment entity, I don't know if you would count this as a comedy team, but for me, the only entertainment entity that gets anywhere near the ballpark of the Marx Brothers is the Muppets. I think the Muppets had, um, for one thing, this kind of joyous indulgence in wordplay and a use of puns and wordplay that does not seem like it should be hysterically funny on its merits, but because of attitude and context, mm-hmm. um, winds up being delirious and delightful and, and really makes you laugh. Uh, and then there's also this kind of motivating force of pure joy in the Muppets that the Marx Brothers had. Um, we always talk about the Marx Brothers as revolutionaries and they're anarchists and renegades and um, anti-establishment heroes. And there's certainly truth to that. But I'm always struck by how the Marx Brothers are not angry you know, joy is what they're about. They do yes. what they do mm-hmm. for sheer joy. And um, I love what you say in your book, Matthew, about how they are, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you here, but they're a force for good inadvertently yes. because they're a force for honesty. Uh, they're accidental that altruists. That is really yeah. true. Yeah, and I think the Muppets had some of that too. Um, the Muppets were more earnest than the Marx Brothers, but um, but also genuinely deranged and and motivated by joy. And um, the Muppet Show was about a family um, putting on a show in an old vaudeville theater. They had a sense of show business, and um, it's of course well documented that Jim Henson and Frank Oz and Jerry Jewell and all those geniuses who created the Muppets were big Marx Brothers fans. And um, we celebrate Kermit the Frog's uh, rendition of Lydia the Tattooed Lady. I would also encourage fans to find Rolf the Dog performing Show Me a Rose (laughs) on the original Muppet Show, which is beautiful. We'll we'll put it up on our blog. Uh, But that's the closest I can get to another Marx Brothers. Uh, Here is a question from Anthony Scabelli, or perhaps Shibelli, or... Ravelli, what's everyone's thoughts on the books that Groucho wrote? Yeah, the question of Groucho's prose output is interesting to me. I, I, I think Groucho was an excellent and very funny writer, and none of the other things I'm about to say are meant to diminish that. <laughs> um, I love his books. I love his essays. I've read them all many times. Um, I think Groucho, you know, we all know that he aspired to be accepted as a writer. Um, Adam Gopnik has said, you know, he's the most brilliant performer in the world, and the poor guy just wanted to be a writer. Um, But because of that, there is a quality to much of his prose that you just don't see very often in his performances, which is the quality of trying too hard. Uh, He often seems in prose to be... um, pushing it. He's just trying so hard to be like the six people he dedicated Groucho and me to. Benchley, Kaufman, Lardner, Perelman, Thurber, and White. Uh, That, of course, is aiming very, very high. And to say that he wasn't quite in that company as a prose humorist is not to say that he wasn't good. 
Um, but for me, his most effective writing is in his letters, where he's not trying so hard to impress. Mm-hmm. He's not writing for public uh, reception. He's just expressing himself in language, which, of course, he, he did brilliantly. Um, and he didn't have a ghostwriter on the letters. And he certainly didn't have a ghostwriter on the letters, but um, I, I welcome either of you to that particular can of worms, if you like. I'm going to steer clear of that one, but uh, but even if even if we even if we don't touch that, you know, I think he was the most brilliant comic performer who ever lived, and also an excellent prose humorist. Yeah, I think he may have had a ghostwriter on the on the um, Warner Brothers Casablanca letters, but other than that, yes. <laughs> other than that, yes, I'm happy to to believe that's him. And it, and they're they're joyous his letters, not just the uh, the famous Groucho letters, but if anybody who's listening hasn't hasn't got it and read it, do get Love Groucho his letters to Miriam, because I think yes. that is the most wonderful and revealing um, picture of of the real man. Uh, you know, talking to his daughter, and he, and yet he's still, you know, he's extremely funny. I love that bit where he says he went to see a cartoon, uh, which featured uh, Abbott and Costello as mice when they should have been rats. Stuff like that, <laughs> you know. He, he, you know, he is, a, he is a, a, obviously a funny man. He is a funny writer. But yes, those essays, uh, you know, they are trying too hard. Groucho and Me, the autobiography, I think is is pretty good. It doesn't tell us much. Um, but that wasn't the point. The point was was to provide us with a you know a humorous, enjoyable book, and I think that's I think that works. I enjoy Groucho and Me very much. The books of of essays, um, particularly Memoirs of a Mangy Lover, I can I can just I can see the sweat on his brow, and the the lines kind of they land heavily. Um, but but there's no reason to to think that. Um, because he's funny on stage reading other people's uh, lines you know that he should he should be the greatest writer ever he does a perfectly reasonable job but you can see his influences too clearly i think you can see what he's trying mm-hmm. to be and what he's trying to be is is better it's benchley and uh, I, i'm not the biggest uh, perelman fan in the world but obviously you know there's perelman in the mix as well um yeah i think he's okay i think he's okay but i don't think that was what he was born to be I agree. I, I particularly agree with what Noah was saying that I, how much I enjoy his work in in the letters because he's seems more relaxed, not trying so hard. You know, when he's trying to be informative, uh, obviously we, from what we know about his life, that he's not very forthcoming and very accurate when it comes to details of his life and his career. And then you know, and some of the other stuff, when he's trying so hard to be literate and. Tr- trying to be funny it it works in, in moments and spurts but not not really as a whole at least as far as i'm concerned so i am i'm always gravitating towards the letters as my favorite written work of his isn't it interesting in some of the later interviews on the dick cavett show um one of those episodes uh groucho is talking with such pride about his literary achievements yeah and he says he must be the only actor to have a this is the way he puts it to have a book in the congressional library which is so strange what he's referring to there is that his letters and other papers were acquired by the library of congress Mm. because of his important contributions as a cultural figure but of course, almost everyone who's published a book has yes. a book in the Library of Congress. Um, it's so strange. He's he's giving that credit with such 
pride, mm. yeah. but he's getting it wrong in such a strange way. Um, yes, you have a book in the Congressional Library. <laughs> but even now, 40 years after his death, you know, I don't I don't want to disabuse him of that. You know, it is, it's it's touching, isn't it? It's uh, very touching. Very human. Yes. Yeah. And he, he deserved to be, you know, considered like a great writer because he, he, he was an excellent writer. And to be the best in the world in your main line and then be, you know, really, really good at anything else is is really impressive. Have you read uh, Fred Allen's two books? Fred Allen, it seems to me, was in some ways the writer Groucho would have liked to be. Um, you wouldn't necessarily put Fred Allen in the same company as Benchley and Thurber either. Um, but he did write two extremely insightful memoirs um, that are very relaxed, very easy. They feel off the cuff, but also very erudite. Um, I, I love his two books. Well, I got another. I got another question from Anthony. What's the one topic about the Marx Brothers that you haven't seen covered in a book that you think deserves a book? And uh, that to me is easy, though I'm not sure it, it can be done or will be done. And that's uh, I'd love to see a, a book about their road tours and uh, behind the scenes and the details. And you know, there's not a lot of information about these tours. There's not many photographs. There's, we've discussed before. You know, they mm. tried to keep everything under wraps because they were practicing material. So they didn't really go high profile on these tours other than the fact that they were appearing. We don't have many photographs, but I'd love to find, I'd love to have more detail about, you know, scenes and how they evolved on, on the tour. I guess the only way to ever really know is to somehow get into some sort of a MGM archive or studio archive where some of these notes and scripts may may exist. I, I doubt it, but it's it's possible. We've talked about before that there m- might actually even be film and or audience recordings from the Go West tour, and I'd love to explore that possibility. But mm. these, these tours are always such a mystery to me. And another thing, um, the photographs. We, we have a couple of photographs on stage from a day at the a Day at the Races tour. There's a, some things backstage off off stage from uh, a night at the opera and go west but uh that's about it you know we don't we don't have any real photographs from these public shows that they they, they were famous and they were in big cities all around the country but we have very mm. little uh photographic evidence of it and the one that's a real mystery to me is their last one a night in casablanca where they're on the west coast they did a handful of shows they did them on some military bases, I think, playing before thousands and thousands of soldiers, and we don't have one image from from any of this. I, I'd love to see it. Then, the Night Castle Blanket Tour is also interesting because it's at the end of that tour was the last time the brothers actually appeared on stage together, and mm. uh, you know it's a momentous thing. I'd love to have a little more record of what happened there. Yeah, I completely yeah, that's agree. A good answer. Yeah, it's um, particularly the day at the races tour. I think I would like to know more about because that one, uh, as I understand it, was was sort of launched before the the script was was finished. In Night of the Opera, they I think they had already had a, a basic idea of what they were doing, and then they they toured selected scenes from it. But I, my mm. understanding is that with the day at the races, they had the comic the comedy scenes, the comic chunks, the sketches, and they toured those and perfected those and then went back and turned it into a script, which is a much more interesting and, and difficult, I would imagine, way of doing it. So um, it would just be wonderful if, if people who went to see them had just recorded their, their impressions of it. Um, as with so many things, it's it's too late now. But uh, I forgot to mention there was also a couple of shows apparently done for 
uh, room service done before they actually started yes. filming. We don't know whether they did a couple of scenes or did the whole show. And that's the thing that's shrouded in mystery. They were going to go on tour and then they decided not to and announce a couple of shows. And it's just mm. it's sort of mind boggling to me that they would, Chico in particular, would learn all this material and then only perform it a couple of times. And there's an interesting thing as well, isn't there? In, um, in Love Groucho, where Groucho is talking to Miriam, he says that, uh, the Casablanca tour uh, was was useful because it it, it it enabled Chico to learn the lines. He said if it wasn't for the tour, Chico would never have been able to uh, to to do it. Basically, to make the movie, it was only via the tour that he that he was able to get the lines into his head, which is very very interesting observation to make. I think. Do you guys think that there actually is enough material here to get a book? Do you think there is a lot of un- uncovered? Yeah. Stuff? Yeah, I think Buried so. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's mm. a book on Lauren Hardy's UK tours uh, by AJ mm. Marriott, which is extremely good. There's a book on the Hol- Hollywood Caravan, you know, which I understand is I haven't got it, but I believe it's extremely good. It's definitely, mm. yeah, a big, a very interesting big chunk of their career because they were basically theatrical comedians. You know, they were stage comedians, mm. and then they stopped being stage comedians and they became movie comedians. But but they had this kind of shadowy theatrical you know parallel life while they were movie comedians and it is relatively unexplored uh robert bader does deal with the the film tours a little bit in uh, four of the three musketeers and adamson quotes usefully from some contemporary press accounts at the time but as you point out considering how many thousands of witnesses there were to these tours uh there ought to be more out there uh, well, one area that I th- think it would be interesting to know more about is Harpo's trip to Russia. Uh, we have the outlines of that. And I know there have been, over the years, at least a couple of proposed dramatic projects based on that. Hmm. But there must be research available. There must be um, you know, information available from the government about Harpo's uh, little mission. Um, and that would be interesting. It would be a way to tell a story about the Marx Brothers that's also... Uh, about something else, um, not just the spy mission that Harpo was given, but also his experience in Russia. I don't know if there's been much research um, on the Russian side of you know what kind of press coverage there was of his appearances, and we know a little bit um, from Harpo himself about what he had to go through to provide his usual material with some context that would sell it to Russian audiences, and uh, that would probably be an interesting. Um, standalone story yeah i would just say that the it's beyond research it's not possible to uh to achieve now but the 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 book we're missing obviously is chico's autobiography um unfortunately we know chico only through other people's impressions of him and you know what what basically what could be more useless than that i mean obviously maxine's book is is a vital um piece in the jigsaw but uh it's obvious that 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 there is so much more to chico he's such a complicated character you know this 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 mathematical prodigy this incredible mind who sort of almost deliberately frittered away all his his gifts on on trivial pursuits not not on trivial pursuit they gave a, how forthcoming but, uh, would he have been actually though how, well you think he really would have who knows but i mean even you know even if he just been, if he just lived long enough to be on the dick cavett show i'd settle for that mm-hmm. but you know the, these little glimpses that we sometimes get like that he collected books about animals that he was really interested in wild yeah. animals and collected books about them. These strange little sides to him that we never get. All we hear about is gambling 
and womanizing and you know uh, uh, being being a, a profligate wastrel and of course that's a huge part of him probably the most huge part of him but but there must have been more to him than that and um, yeah the dogs and roller skating yeah (laughs) (laughs) so that's what i what i what i really long for is just the chance to to hear chico put put just to put his his side of the story you know just whatever Mm -hmm. whatever it may be however vague or, or insubstantial it may be i just want to hear his voice i just want to hear him telling the story i think even an in depth analysis of chico's work as a comedian would be interesting. Um, He does tend to get overshadowed, not just in the films, but in the discussion of the films. And, you know, any kind of study of the Marx Brothers that focused on Chico would be sort of novel and interesting. Yeah, because at his best, you know, in in their their best films, he really is an integral part. I mean, it's obvious that at MGM, it's not so much that they that they that they sort of jettison him. It's more that they just they don't understand him. They don't know what to do with him. But in, in Paramount, you know, he really is uh, an equal an equal part and uh, very very funny. And uh, he's yeah he's he's absent from the from the historiography, isn't he? So what's the story with the uh, Zeppo book that somebody was working on? Is that ever going to happen, or did they get abandoned? It got abandoned, I think, partly because they just there just wasn't you know there just wasn't quite enough there for a book, but also because the really interesting stuff about him is still uh, sealed, isn't it? There there are um, there are interesting government uh, reports on him mm-hmm. and his activities that are still inaccessible. I believe is the case. Is that right? Am I right? I think that is right, and I. I should know offhand. I can't think of the name of the man. He's a member of the council. Michael J. C. Taylor. That's the one. Yeah. I think his his uh, thesis and book was called "Because um, There's Nothing I Can't Do: Zeppo Marx and the American Dream," mm. which is a great title. <laughs> Takes its its main title from uh, the theatrical agency. See, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a fine for guys like you because there's nothing I can't do. Uh, yeah, I'd I could I'd be happy to just read that title several times. <laughs> well, if nothing comes to fruition, I think uh, I'll put together a book of his canceled checks because there seem to be a lot of them. <laughs> 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 they must have uh, uh, great stories behind all of them. The annotated checks of Zeppo Marx. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only man in history who's canceled more checks than he signed. Yeah. <laughs> This is, uh, an, I think, another anonymous one. Uh, given the advances in technology and the Marxian acumen of your good selves, what mm. parts of the Marx Brothers story still have room for exploration? Um, there's no question in my mind what the answer to that is. It's the period of their screen career between uh, their move to RKO and the completion of At the Circus. We have... Um, uh, uh, in most books, a very general uh, sense of what happened there. Um, it's mm. it's very abbreviated, and I think in in many significant points, it's incorrect. Mm. The story is that at the end of A Day at the Races, when Thalberg had died, they were loaned out to RKO. They made room service, and then they sort of trundled back to MGM with their tails between their legs and made three films without Thalberg's protection under Louis Bumer, who hated them and they weren't very good. 
that's that's not what happened. What actually happened is that they they at the end of Day of the Races, MGM made an offer for more for more films they, to extend their contract, but they went instead to RKO. They went there largely because of the opportunity to experiment and try something different. They wanted to break the mold, and room service was an obvious uh, first attempt at that because it was a, a vaguely a guaranteed success in that it was a huge Broadway hit. Uh, so it had that sort of it already had that sort of um, guarantee of success behind it. But they were going to play it the way. Uh, it was written. Groucho was going to grow a real moustache. Harpo was going to uh, speak. And there was talk of doing a version of um, of The I Sing, which was the film they wanted to make when they briefly left Paramount in the early stages of Duck Soup and formed their own production company, and that came to nothing. That was revived. Uh, there was talk of them doing a version of The Three Musketeers, which ended up with the Ritz Brothers at uh, at Fox. And um, the, 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 the keynote was experimentation. What happened then, immediately after that, is is to some extent still mysterious for some reason in the very early stages of room service they re-signed to MGM nobody quite knows why but the immediate result of that was all of their plans at RKO sort of fizzled away they got they got very cold feet uh, they decided not to do um, uh, an authentic version of room service but to do it in their own style and then they went back to MGM and the, I think the key figure who is neglected in this is Mervyn Leroy. Mervyn Leroy uh, obviously was a familiar figure. He was a, a noted director who'd made many significant films in the 30s. But if you look at the trade papers around the time of At the Circus in the late 30s, he was very much the new Thalberg. You see it time and again in the trades. Um, Mervyn Leroy is coming to MGM as their new Thalberg, their new wonder boy, their new super producer. And he was very much uh, what Thalberg was, a buffer between his productions and the front office. And he was the person who tempted the Marx Brothers back. And he brought brought them with him as very much part of his uh, his uh, entourage along with Kenny uh, Kenny Baker who was who was his who was his um, protege and also Irving Brecker the screenwriter came to MGM via Mervyn Leroy and so the Marx Brothers came back to MGM absolutely uh, in, in on the same terms that they went there the first time as a kind of uh, a prestige act who was um, insulated from the front office by a star producer. Now, what I don't know is why that should suddenly sour them on on how room service was, why they should then decide to abandon all their ideas about doing it differently and instead to do it as a kind of a compromise between their old act. Maybe they just thought that, well, we're going back to MGM, so what's the point? We may as well just may as well just get this done in our usual way. You don't think it was RKO that might have stepped in and said, well, you know, since we only got you for the one film anyhow, let's play it safe and do uh, regular Marx Brothers. Yeah, actually, that's entirely possible. Yeah, yeah, that's entirely possible. Um, but but nonetheless, you know, they, when they went back to MGM, 
um, they they didn't feel any sense of oh we're we, you know we're kind of slinking back to to mm-hmm. to Louis B Mayer. Uh, unfortunately, what happened was that that, that Mervyn Leroy decided that it, he wasn't cut out for the job, and the I, the story is that um, it was the experience of producing uh, the Wizard of Oz. It was so difficult and it was so tiring that he just thought this isn't for me I want to just go back to being a director so it was it was at that point after at the circus that they were sort of abandoned to 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 MGM's disinterest and I'd just love to know more about that period. I'd like to see the letters. I'd like to yeah. see the cables. Yeah. I'd like to see the letters from MGM to RKO to Mervyn Leroy to, you know. Um, it's funny you bring up Wizard of Oz because there are a couple of um, uh, contemporary notes that sort of jokingly refer to the Marx Brothers being involved with the Wizard of Oz. And I wonder whether it, there was ever any talk a little more serious than that. Like Harpo as the Scarecrow and Chico as the Tin Man and Groucho as the Lion or something? Yeah. That would be an interesting concept. I I mean, we don't really have... There are times when projects like that were proposed, putting them into the Three Musketeers and things like that, but um, it never quite happened. I guess um, glimpses of Groucho as Napoleon or Harpo as Paul Revere, as as close as we ever got to them sort of taking on classic roles... Mm -hmm. But uh, I have heard um, on more than one occasion people talk about a Marx Brothers Christmas Carol with Groucho as Scrooge and, uh, you know, uh, the other brothers playing, I guess, various ghosts or, um, you know, that I don't know how true that would be to the spirit of the Marx Brothers. I've never heard of that. It's it's a fun game. I mean, you can kind of imagine uh, Groucho as Scrooge, certainly. um, But, you know, it would take uh, the essence of a Christmas Carol and turn it into the Groucho show. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'd rather see the Groucho show mm-hmm. myself. I'd love to see a little more exploration into the making of Duck Soup. We've seen the film uh, uh, analyze from here to, here to there and everywhere, but the, the making of it, it seems like a fascinating story from when it was conceived to the Marx Brothers leaving the studio and other other uh, comedians supposedly being put into it and the director shuffle and ending up with McCary and the reshoots. It just seems like there was a lot more meat there than in any uh, film prior to that. You know, it's, the mo- it's to me the most interesting uh, thing of their Paramount uh, years, the most interesting story. You could start Matthew's proposed book that way. I mean, you could start with Duck Soup and take it up to A Night at the Opera, you know, the Marx Brothers in transition. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this one, I feel like it was intended for me. Um, it's an anonymous question, and you'll know why, because it's so incendiary. But it is, uh, what bits from I'll Say She Is turned up in future films? Uh, none. That's an excellent question. There were none. Anonymous. Yes, none at all. It, was, it had no influence on the career which followed. It was a um, point, and anyone who ever, even considered reviving it must be a fool. <laughs> I'll say she is was a serious drama about a young Swedish girl coming of age during the war. And, oh no, of course, I'm being silly. I thought sometime you guys are going to have to challenge me to go an episode without mentioning I'll say she is, um, but it's not to be this one. Um, you got the theatrical agency scene, which was written by Herman Timberg for On the Mezzanine, and 
lived on into Isle Satias and was filmed, as we all know, in 1931 at Paramount. And within that scene, there's the Harpo and Chico fighting uh, bit, which resurfaces in Coconuts and Animal Crackers, um, and also the succession of impressions, which happens in monkey business. There's a poker game in Isle Satias, and many incidental gags from that scene wind up in the bridge scene in Animal Crackers, including Harpo's unique way of shuffling cards, unique and ineffective way of shuffling cards and wetting the wrong thumb and disposing of a card he doesn't like and all of that. Also, the um, cut the cards gag from uh, Horse Feathers is in the uh, poker scene. I didn't know that. I'll say she is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And as is typical of the Johnstone typescript, uh, there's there's no action described, but the typescript gives Chico the line, cut the cards... What's the matter? You spoil the cards like that. So, so you have to imagine, but I'm pretty sure that was the gag. Uh, the Napoleon scene, of course, has many descendants as a basic premise. Almost every Marx Brothers movie has a scene of running in and out of a room, avoiding each other or hiding from a, an officious authority figure, sometimes with a woman in the mix. Um, and then some specific gags from the Napoleon scene that, that resurfaced are the bigamy pun, uh, which was Chico's in Alsatians mm-hmm. and becomes Groucho's line in, in the strange interlude scene in Animal Crackers. And the blue surge suit joke, which pops up again in Coconuts. Uh, different versions of the Napoleon scene have different variations on the Beyond the Alps line that we get later in Horse Feathers. Um, oh, also the specific exchange, did he go? Who? Anybody. Uh, is in both the Napoleon scene and in the adjacent hotel rooms uh, sequence in Coconuts. Uh, there's a courtroom scene in I'll Say She Is, which, although I'm not aware of any specific gags, um, it seems like a um, it anticipates the trial in Duck Soup and also the courtroom stuff that was cut from At the Circus. Um, and finally, uh, Harpo's knife-dropping routine, which, of course, goes back all the way to, I think, Mr. Green's reception, um, but it was very prominent in I'll Say She Is, and we know it from the film version of Animal Crackers. Even some of the lines in it, Groucho's, you know, um, this may go on for years. Uh, th- that's in the uh, I'll Say She Is typescript. And so is another line that I like that Johnstone um, gives to Groucho, in my adaptation, it was Chico's, um, but it's at the end of the knife dropping, the detective indicates all the silverware lying all over the stage and says, that's stealing. And Chico says, no, that's sterling. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another film, isn't there, where the, that has the knife dropping in it. Um, in fact, let me, I've got my book here, so hang on a minute. There. Should I put on some intermission music? Yeah. <laughs> can't find it but there's another film that uh that that features the knife dropping uh prior to to coconuts being made and the the review of it in variety says it's a marx brothers bit oh, oh i see from i'll say she is um I, I, it's in one of my books i can't find the reference but it, it the, the variety view says you know there's a very funny bit where uh, this guy drops a little knives but it's a marx brothers bit from i'll say she is maybe it's in the mummy book did you check in there it could be, it could be in the, <laughs> might be in my jane austen book i'm not sure <laughs> 
Collins. That's right. I had forgotten that. I thought you meant another Marx Brothers. Mm. Yes. Is that? Do you remember if that film is exists? I think it exists. Shall we? Actually, shall we just put it on on pause and I will find it. Hold on. <laughs> Here we are. I found it. Okay, right. Um, yes, there's there's a 1926 Paramount film called Behind the Front, uh, which which featured what may well be the first sighting of an authentic Marx routine in the movies, although it didn't oh, yeah. involve any of the Marx Brothers. Uh, yeah. Vari- Variety noted on March the third, 1926, one of the laugh hits of the picture, where the pickpocket drops a lot of knives from his uh, and forks from his sleeves, has been taken bodily. From Alsatia's, it's a Marx Brothers bit. Well, yeah, that's. I would love to get a look at that. Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, we don't. Uh, when the Marx Brothers do a classic like the mirror routine in Duck Soup, um, we don't think of it as as stolen. Mm. I guess. I guess the knife dropping is a little bit more specifically Harpo's invention. Um, the mirror routine must go back so far on stage that it's, it can't really be traced. It also endures beyond into Spike Milligan. Spike Milligan um, constantly in his TV work, uh, whenever a character stands up, you you hear the clink of dropped cutlery. It's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> frequent feature of his work in various contexts. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it predates and postdates and uh, everything else. I love Harpo in his book when he talks about the party that was thrown for him at the Algonquin on the night I'll say she is closed in New York. Um, and he went to see his friends and be received as a conquering hero. And um, FPA went to shake hands with Harpo and a, a knife dropped out of FPA's sleeve and <laughs> clattered to the floor. And Harpo said that's when he knew he had he was accepted. So I got a question here from the wonderful... Scott Saturnay, he says, you finally have gotten that time machine to work, but it will only be good for one trip. Which of their stage shows do you see? Well, this one I went, uh, I was all over the place on. I, I'd love to see them at their peak in Animal Crackers. I'd love to see, you know, some of their great, the road tours as I've talked about. But I finally came down on, I'd love to be at the moment, the moment where they hit it big. That first uh, performance of Alsatias that Alexander Wolcott uh, reviewed that opening, uh, that's the moment they hit it big. That's the moment their their careers changed. And uh, that's the show I'd love to see. They were young, they were hungry, and they were they got recognized by, uh, by the world at that moment, and that's the one. Yeah, that would be my answer, too. I'm sure it will surprise nobody uh, to hear that. That would be my choice. But, but since it is such an obvious answer, and since you've already answered it so well, Bob, I will just throw in that I'll say she is notwithstanding. Uh, It really would be interesting to see Home Again. Um, And I think Home Again was the summary of everything that had come before. We say that about Asishis too, but of course Home Again um, was from an earlier place before even the modern Groucho character had emerged. And I think, you know, the the notion of bringing Asishis back was possible only because it featured the very familiar Marx Brothers. Um, and it's much harder to get a handle on what exactly they were like on stage um, pre-On the Mezzanine, pre-1920s. Uh, and I'm sure if we were able to see Home Again or Mr. Green's Reception, we would recognize all kinds of familiar dynamics and familiar material and 
Harpo and Chico probably were essentially playing the characters we know. But um, it would be great to have something other than uh, S.J. Perelman's description um, to know what that vaudeville tabloid was like. Yeah, you're both right. I mean, you've you've both given the right answer. But I, you know, I hear the words "time machine," and I just I just see the word selfishness. Um, you know, I'd love to kill, I'd love to kill Hitler. I'd love to cure cancer. But but I just want to sit in the stalls watching Animal Crackers. I want to look across at Robert Benchley and exchange a smile. And yeah, that's, that that'll do for me. That's nice. And there's no reason why you couldn't go kill Hitler. After the <laughs> I, you know, I don't think I would choose it if I had one shot at a time machine, but I'm curious about Cinderella Girl. We know so yes, little about what yes, that was. Yeah. And that really was the first Marx Brothers musical that was not a vaudeville tabloid. And um, Uncle Al directed it. And um, uh, Gus Kahn was partially responsible for writing it. So it does have this kind yeah. of Marx Brothers um, genesis to it. Um, I'm curious about what that was and how close... Uh, you know, we really don't know anything about it, about what their roles were like or what the scenario was. It's often been, I guess, theorized that the Cinderella backward sequence in I'll Say She Is had some connection to it. But I- I'm not convinced of that because there were similar... Cinderella bits in earlier Johnstone reviews, and I think that's the more likely genesis of of Cinderella backwards. So I, that's one that just because it's such an unknown entity, it would be interesting to see what it was. And humorist, you know, like to sit and watch humorist with those those kids in that screening that Chico arranged in the uh, the absolutely yeah. undeniable Groucho account of the version. Yeah. Well, how about uh, being there when uh, Zeppo filled in for Groucho in, in Chicago? <laughs> And about yeah. crackers. That would be a good one. Or when Harpo and Chico switched <laughs> roles on one of the tours. That story that Maxine has told. I want to see Groucho dressed as Napoleon, stuck in that traffic. I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would be interesting to see uh, when Harpo played banjo in uh, The Man Who Came to Dinner. <laughs> Actually, I'd love to see Groucho in 20th century in 1934. That, yeah. I'd love to see that because that was his first sort of after joining the brothers that was his first attempt at at stepping out and apparently it was a great success so yes I would love to see that oh you know I I think this goes back a couple of questions but uh, wasn't there a proposed project with Groucho as Sherlock Holmes yes twice that came up twice yeah was it going to be a series of films after after Love Happy or or between Nine Kissing and Love Happy, where Groucho was going to be a detective. There were Lester Cowan announced a series of films where he was going to be a detective. Yes, but there were also two two attempts to to uh, to present him as Sherlock Holmes. One with uh, with uh, Chico and Harper involved as well, and then the other more more seriously was proposed by by Kaufman as a play, and that was that was genuinely uh, considered, and they decided that it wasn't there wasn't enough there to to create a show with. But, yeah, an interesting idea. I'm sure his actorly transformation into Sherlock Holmes would be every bit as convincing as his Napoleon was. <laughs> yes. Isn't it amazing how many absolutely spectacular or fascinating things were planned or proposed for them after 1936 and how little mm. of them actually came to fruition or were actually tried? I guess room service might have really soured them on experimenting. 
I mean, it was just a logistic thing, I think, as well, just getting them all together. You know, Groucho didn't... Once you got to 1940, Groucho didn't want to be a Marx brother. He really didn't. He wanted to be Groucho Marx. And um, all these ideas... Uh, the the, th- the things that did happen happened for for reasons you know that were beyond just them choosing to happen. Both Night in Casablanca and Love Happy. Here's a question, an anonymous question that I'd be really interested to know both of your answers to. Uh, the question is: If you could only have one Marx Brothers book on your shelf, Ooh. which book would you choose? And you can't say, "Well, I'd only put one on the shelf, and the others I'd keep in a drawer." <laughs> can I say mine? You can say yours. <laughs> I don't think you'd be the only one to say that. <laughs> I think, to be honest, if I had to have one, obviously it would be Harpo Speaks. I think most people think that Harpo Speaks is the one book that doesn't count as a book. It's almost a film. It's almost mm-hmm. part of the, uh, you know, it, it's not part of the of the secondary literature. It's a primary source. Um, it, it's a joy. It's a pleasure. So if you rule out Harpo Speaks, if you're just talking about, um, you know, the actual books about them, then obviously Joe's uh, Joe Adamson's um, Gretchen Harpo Chicken Sometimes Zeppo is the is the kind of um, totem, you know, the, the the Statue of Liberty of Groucho, of, of Marx Brothers uh, literature. Um, I also love Simon Louvish's book. It doesn't always get a great press. I think that's a great book. Um, but the, uh, of all the other books, I think the one that most made me think like, here is another Harpo Speaks, here is another book I can never part with, is Love Groucho. Is his Letters mm-hmm. to Miriam. Mm. It's such a, such a moving and amusing and charming book. Yeah, no doubt about it. This is a tough question. I'll tell you what. I got Joe's book, which I grew up with, totally uh, implanted in my brain. I, I've read it so many times. It's, it's it's part of my DNA. So I don't need to bring that one along. And uh, Matthew's book I worked on. Uh, I was along for the ride. So I have a lot of that one already uh, implanted in my brain. Uh, yeah, so I think I want to go with something more visual to uh, actually enjoy the Marxes with. So I'm going to cheat and say... How about Art Ducko, the new book uh, uh, documenting the first half of their movie career? And it's just one beautiful page after another of great images and things I haven't seen before. And it, I still could be surprised by a Marx Brothers book. Uh, this is it. Uh, with a quick shout out to Robert Bader and his great work. I certainly don't have that one committed to memory, though I'd like to someday. So how about two books? How about one ebook and one Hardcover. How about that? I mean, uh, it's it is Joe Adamson's book that is closest to my heart for the reasons Matthew states. Um, as much as anything else, I just love Joe's writing, um, and his book makes me feel like I'm in the Marx Brothers' heads in a way that um, that no other book quite does. And also because it was my introduction to them, it, you know, it has tremendous sentimental value to me. Uh, however. If right now you told me that I was about to go be stranded on a desert island, the book I might grab to take with me is Four of the Three Musketeers, Robert Bader's recent tome, because um, there's a tremendous amount of 
information in that book, including a lot that was previously unknown to me. And, you know, I've, I've only read it once. It just came out. I, I've read it once and then I've also gone through it a couple of times. But, you know, I still have to read that book a few more times to really assimilate all the information in it. And so in a way I might get, I might pass the time more, uh, more effectively with that one. And a word also for Glenn Mitchell's Mark Spothers Encyclopedia, which you can dip into. Yeah. There's nothing quite like a book you could dip into anywhere and just find something interesting. I love that first edition. Yep. 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 That's the one. <laughs> it, it's funny because uh, not only are, are later editions more, uh, have more in them, but also he told me that uh, it was only later on that he realized that the first edition had a load of stuff cut out of it by the publishers that he didn't realize he handed the manuscript in and they just cut chunks out just for for reasons of space and uh, obviously no one sits and, and reads their own book from cover to cover so he did he just didn't notice um but there's just something about that first edition it's got a beautiful cover the it's got a beautiful font it, you just want to you want to you just want to kind of jump into it and wallow and and sink your fangs into it in a way that you know you don't in the later editions so yeah the first edition is the one for me <laughs> Does it have the best font of any Marx book, would you say? Of any book, of any book <laughs> ever written, yeah. <laughs> and mine, and mine, I'm pleased to say, is signed by Glenn in his trademark minuscule handwriting. I've never seen anyone sign a book with such small writing. It's, it, you literally, you have to get a magnifying glass to see his name. Here's a question that was asked sarcastically, but I'm going to answer it seriously. Uh, this is by uh, our friend Eric Grayson. Oh, Eric Grayson. No, this is Eric Grayson writes, do you think the Marx Brothers movie should be released in color at 16 by 9 so hipsters will watch them? And I'm going to say, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And right now, <laughs> Eric is swearing at the podcast. He's throwing his iPod on the floor and he's like, God damn those guys. But... <laughs> <laughs> but you know when i was i i to me it's all about the performance about the marxes you know I, as a film historian yeah. obviously you you want to see it as intended in black and white but to see the marxes perform if if it's well colorized and it, and it looks nice it, it's fine with me and if it gets a few more people to to watch it that's fine with me it's you know and it's a f film i've seen a hundred times and maybe to give it a little different uh spice uh sure why not see it in color uh, the 16 by 9 i'm not sure of i'm not sure it could be done um so i'll i'll, I'll give them that one but the a nice colorized version of a marx brothers film i have no problem with yep i don't care i do not care i mean my personal aesthetics are that i love black and white and i love a square screen but that's just me uh what the the point is the jokes the point is the comedy. I can't think of any way you could spoil that by colorizing mm. it or doing whatever the hell you want with it. I do not care if that. I mean, to be honest, I don't really believe that it that it would make a difference. To be honest, to, to kind of new audiences, I don't. I, I'm not sure that that's true. Uh, a lot of peers will say it's not as they intended. Well, you know, they were not shot and edited with the intention of being watched no. by two people in a living room. You yeah. know, so if yeah. the joke, if the if the jokes are there. If the performances yep. are there, if the yep. songs are there, yep. you know, so it's fine with me. It is also undeniably true that the Marx Brothers didn't make their movies in black and white as an aesthetic choice. If there had been color films, surely they would have made them in mm -hmm. color. Uh, but, you know, yes. I, I will say I, 
I have been, you know, showing Marx Brothers movies to children and teenagers since I was a child. Um, and I do it all the time. I'm always trying to get young people interested. And I, in my experience anyway, I've never once heard a young person express any kind of dislike for black and white movies Absolutely. or old movies. As far as I know, it's entirely something that older people say about younger people. You know, I mean, I've, so many people have said that to me as though as though I'm of a tender age, which I'm really not anymore. But, you know, oh, it's so great that people care about this. Just try getting young people to watch black and white movies. And I always think, well, I have tried and I've succeeded every single time. I think uh, young people are open minded about that stuff. And especially, you know, um, in uh, Mr. Grayson's um, tongue in cheek use of the word hipsters, you know, release them in color at 16 by 9 so hipsters will watch them. But I don't know. Don't you think the vintage cachet of a creaky black and white movie would be more appealing yeah. to hipsters? Yeah. You know, they're constantly growing 19th century mustaches and uh, <laughs> things like that. Um, I think the <laughs> antique quality of these films is a selling point for, for many young people. And uh, as in my experience, uh, there's never been a barrier to entry around the apparent age of absolutely yeah when i lived in london i um my my local cinema the phoenix in east finchley uh put on a saturday morning show of laurel and hardy silent shorts for children only children and their you know uh, parents or or um you know guardians only and i got into it i sneaked into it because the woman i worked for at that time her grandson was obsessed with Laurel and Hardy. And I said, oh, I really want to see this film. Can I be his his guardian? You know, so I got into this film. He was about four years old. And uh, I said to her, what do you think it is about him uh, that, that, that he likes Laurel and Hardy so much? And she she thought she stopped and thought. And she said, I think it's the black and white. He doesn't see that anywhere else. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's not a barrier. It's it's a it's a point of interest. Right. But I don't care. I agree with Bob. You know, it's, it's, it's all about the jokes. I don't care. <laughs> Another thing to consider is uh, for fans like us, the colorization will never work no matter how well it's done because it's always going to be in our minds. We're, we're always going to be uh, aware of it. It'll be in our consciousness. How well is this done? How believable is this? It's all good and well. You know, for, for, for people who have never seen the films before and seen them in color, you know, that's the only way they'll know them. I, I showed my kids um, some colorized Three Stooges shorts a, a couple of years ago, and they love them. And it wasn't until afterwards that I said, you know, did you know those were artificially colored? And they were like, oh, I'm glad you didn't tell us beforehand. They would have ruined it for us. Mm-hmm. You know, so if they don't know and it's well done, why not? But I, I agree with, you know, there's no reason why they wouldn't enjoy a black and white film just as well. I just, mm. I just like the fact that, if there's an alternative version, it's like a new mix of an album. You know, mm. it's a remix. Some people might like the new mix. Some people might like the old mix. And as long as they're both available, that's right. Yeah, as long as you can, as long as there's access to both. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's fine. Who cares? So there, Eric. So Eric will continue to berate me about this online. So he's exploded already. Steer clear. He's a, yes. he's a pile of dust on the floor, steaming. And as far as the widescreen goes, I could I could see that there are some. You know the the films were a lot more square in aspect ratio back in the 30s mm. than they than they were later on, even before widescreen. But in the 30s, they were a lot more square. And you know, there might be some scenes. 
It might not work. I'm not sure the uh, the mirror scene would work in widescreen. You might, you might be cutting off the feet and the head. So, so you know. I love square. I love pan and scan. Were they a comedy team? <laughs> <laughs> uh, isn't it true that we're already looking at somewhat cropped versions of the films on home apparently video? judging by the credit sequences yeah 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 they're almost they're square yeah. almost the credit mm. sequences somewhere i've seen a comparison of stills i think of the wire duck scene in coconuts showing how much more of the table you could see in the original framing uh, compared to the way we're used to seeing and, it, and it's so it's much funnier when you can see all the table <laughs> Yes, you can really appreciate how wet that map oh, is. Yes. It's just that there's no point unless you can see the whole table. Uh, well, what do we got left? Uh, um, oh, yeah, there's still some chosen questions. Um, Yet another right. one from Anthony Schibelli or Schibelli or Fragilli. Very prolific uh, yeah. guy. Um, he says, <clears throat> given the need and the opportunity. Do you want that <clears throat> in the letter? <laughs> Do you think Chico and Harpo could have successfully modified their persona the same way that Groucho did uh, in the 50s for You Bet Your Life? Um, which mm. is interesting. I, I think... Good, good question. The answer is yes, they, they could have. Um, but the, the, the vital question is, is, would it have happened? I think the 1950s... Uh, and particularly the the usurpation of uh, you know of television over cinema um, was a very kind of heartless era, and um, Groucho, you know the, the 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 word reinvention is is uh, you know is significant. I don't think that people watching television in the 1950s felt that they owed anything. To, to the stars of previous generations they had to earn the right to be stars and I think that Groucho after spending most of the 1940s actually fruitlessly trying to become a solo star um, trying all sorts of, of avenues and, and, and lamenting in his letters to Miriam that he wasn't a, uh, you know, a headliner on radio. He was always somebody else's guest. Um, it was, it was a, a great stroke of luck that You Bet Your Life came along and, and he became a big star in the late 40s and 50s. I think Harpo and Chico, you know, they had their opportunities. Chico had the College Bowl and uh, Papa Romani. And um, obviously Harpo was compromised by his his uh, decision to, you know, to not speak. Um, but it wasn't really a question of their capabilities. It was more a question of what the public were willing to um, to accept. And they were quite they were quite heartless. It was, you know, I talk about the 1940s in cinematic terms in my books as being as a, a new broom decade. But the 1950s equally in television, I think, uh, you know, when Milton Berle came along and so on, you know, they, they had to prove themselves. And I think they just they looked at Chico in the College Bowl and they just thought, you know, this is pleasant enough, but th there's not enough here to command our our allegiance. And the fact that he was very, very funny 20 years ago isn't relevant. It's, it doesn't mean anything. We've moved on. Mm. So although, you know, now we would we would jump at the chance to see Chico in anything, doing anything, and Harpo likewise. In those days, it was much more um, dog eat dog, you know, and um, they just didn't have Chico or Harpo just didn't have the same capacity for expansion that Groucho had. 
Yeah, you know, and the fact that uh, Chico in particular was so married to his costume, his vintage costume, yes. I'd heard of because he was basically always a cartoon character. He couldn't, well, do you think he could have played a contemporary Italian guy in the 1950s? Would that have even worked? Well, that's kind of what Papa Romani, I guess, is, isn't it? Which which I enjoy. I like. I love Papa Romani. I think it's really nice. But uh, you know, mm-hmm. the people thought, obviously, thought in a way that the Chico reinvention had sort of already happened as early as opera and races. You know, um, Chico is much less the you know absurdist renegade that he is in the earlier films, and he becomes much more like a sitcom character, an avuncular, charming, yes. you know. Just sweet little guy and that's what he is in the college ball and, and Papa Romani pretty much and um, it, I think it was feasible it just wasn't particularly compelling um, and you know he sort of gave up being a comedic genius um, but way before their film career was over At Harpo I think you can see in some of the later TV appearances that although of course, he's always delightful, and it's always a treat to see him. His character, I think, had the hardest time aging. Um, you know, the older he yes. got, the more lined yes. his face looked, the more peculiar it was for him to be behaving that way. Um, and when he was a little more impish and, and youthful and smooth-faced, um, his behavior was, was um, I don't know, easier to accept somehow. Mm. Well, we have a long anonymous question about uh, ethnic identity in the Marx Brothers movies. And I'm not going to read the whole question. It raises lots of questions from which we could spin several episodes if we chose to, including uh, the Gabriel and, and Swingali scenes in uh, Day of the Races and at the Circus, and the difference between... Russian Jews and German Jews or German and Alsatian Jews, which the Marx Brothers were. Um, but I wanted to mention the question and, and riff on it a little bit because it, it deals with the Marx Brothers' uh, Jewish identity, which is increasingly an interesting topic to me over the years. I used to dismiss it completely um, on the grounds that uh, it wasn't an important part of who they were. Um, Yes, a disproportionate number of great American comedians of the 20th century were Jewish, and indeed there is a Jewish attitude that finds its way into lots of comedy by Jews and by non-Jews. Um, the Groucho himself always made a point out of how, you know, yes, we're Jewish, but you had to play every town in America, you know. And that line about how this must be the far Rockaway boat because I can smell the herring uh, just doesn't get laughs in Victor, Colorado. Um, and whenever people talk about the Marx Brothers as Jewish humorists, they always quote a couple of lines that I don't think make the point very well, like the Levy's line in, in the Wyaduck scene. And the use of the word schnorrer in Hooray for Captain Spaulding. And I always say, well, you know, just using a Yiddish word doesn't necessarily make it Jewish humor. The Marx Brothers were not uh, Tomaszewski, Mighty Lack of Rose, you know. Um, but then, but now I think it is significant that the word schnorrer was used in Hooray for Captain Spaulding with the full understanding that the audience would know what it meant and that it would get a laugh. That does tell you something about the culture of at least 
the Broadway Marx Brothers. Um, and I don't know if it has something to do with the fact that I'm, you know, I get I get one year older every year or what it is, but the Marx Brothers seem to get a little more Jewish every time I look at them. And I see it more and more when I watch them. Um, not so much in the explicit Jewish references that occasionally find their way into the work, but uh, but in other places, things like, uh, you know, I when I came here, I didn't have a nickel in my pocket and now I have a nickel in my pocket. Uh, that does strike me as very, very Jewish. And Groucho's voice and particularly his accent, we talk a lot about Groucho's delivery and his vocal tone and um, the quality of his voice, but very rarely about his accent. And it's important. I think the first few Marx Brothers movies give us the best preserved record we have of what a first-generation Jewish New York accent sounds like. Um, you know, we, we talk about uh, the 2,000-year-old man, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. One of the great gifts to the culture of that set of albums is that in Mel Brooks' performance, we have this beautiful document of what a certain kind of New York Jew talked like. Well, the people who talked like that had children who talked like Groucho Marx. Um, and I don't know, I'm not going anywhere with this, but it's interesting. I feel more open to this subject than I used to. And I think, um, you know, this might also be an answer to the question about unexplored areas of the Marx Brothers. If, if you know, what, what could you still write a book about? Um, I think there is something to say about their, um, their Jewish identity and the influence on their work of of Jewishness. We're not really talking about Judaism here because they weren't religious. Um, but, uh, but they were indeed Jewish. And I think now, um, after years of reflection, that their work is more Jewish than I thought it was. Oh, and, and one more thing on this subject. In, in At the Circus and Go West, Groucho gives, as we all know, a very different kind of performance. And he doesn't seem as much like the real Groucho. <laughs> and also in those two films, I think he seems a lot less Jewish and less New York. Exactly. It seems like he's becoming this kind of middle American yes. character. He's turning hmm. into Bob Hope. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very good point as well that you made about the, the Schnorrer line, because um, the, the, the format that my book sort of fell into um, was was kind of explaining lost references, and most of them are references that are lost in time. You know, people today don't know who, who Charlie Ross was. People don't know what the trial of Mary Dugan was. But the Schnorrer joke isn't isn't a joke that lost that's lost in time. It's a joke that's lost in in culture. I think you know Jewish audiences get it now as clearly as they did in 1930 it's everybody else that doesn't so it's the kind of the the shrinking of that of that um aspect of the wider culture so that the, that's a, a you know a very significant point is that the idea that anybody would know what the word schnorrer meant in 1930 isn't because it was from 1930 it, it's because something else has changed um, in 2015, I did um, an appearance at the Jewish Museum um, on Fifth Avenue. Um, it was a, an hour of unscripted conversation with me as Groucho being interviewed by a guy named Jens Hoffman, who was uh, uh, director of programs at the museum. And um, it was really interesting because the audience was not entirely, but largely elderly New York Jews. And 
the way they responded to Groucho was distinctive. It had a family feeling to it. And when I referred in that conversation to the Far Rockaway joke, it got a sincere laugh from them. They they really thought that was a funny joke. Also, interestingly, when explaining as Groucho who Uncle Al was, I sang a little bit of the Gallagher and Sheen song, and there was a wave of recognition in the audience. Um, they couldn't place the name, but they sincerely remembered the song as having been popular during their childhoods. Well, as the token Jew on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a token Jew. <laughs> My wife and son are Jews. <laughs> Matthew's Jewish by marriage. <laughs> you know, I've always been aware of their, of their, their, their Jewish heritage, and obviously there are a few uh, moments here and there where it, where it comes out, but I've never really considered their humor to be Jewish humor. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's always seemed much more aggressive and not as self not self not self demeaning what's the word i'm looking for self deprecating yeah, self effacing yeah Defacing. yes as 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 jewish, as jewish humor usually is so it, it is an interesting you know there's a difference between jewish comedians and jewish humor you know the three stooges were jewish comedians but they weren't really doing jewish humor which comedians would you say are more explicitly Jewish humorists? People like Myron Cohen yeah. and, and yeah. that crowd? or Jackie, Jackie Mason, Mason, yeah. Woody Allen, Albert Brooks. There's yeah. a lovely actor in, in Paramount Films in the early 30s called Harry Green. Do you know him? He turns up in, yeah. in Clara yeah. Bow films and, and things. He, he's, he's rather like um, Louis Oren, uh, but more so. He's a, a ah. very funny Jewish, uh, you know, comic uh, supporting actor. Harry Green. Yeah, he's great. Probably more questions on this subject than any other and what was submitted to us. And it's also something that comes up quite often in conversations in the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. And that is the question of a Marx Brothers biopic. I think the upcoming Stan and Ollie picture has reawakened this um, question on, on the minds of Marx Brothers fans. So there's many approaches to this. We've gotten the question, um, should there be a Marx Brothers biopic? If there were one, how would you cast it? Um, and what part of their career, if it's not a cradle-to-grave story, which part of their career should it focus on? Um, what do you guys think? What would you, what, What's your take on the Marx Brothers biopic? The whole galaxy of questions <laughs> around this subject. I, I'm kind of an odd man out on this because whenever these questions come out, the, the, there tends to be um, sort of basically three positions one is the is the person who says um it's ridiculous there's no you know this is awful uh you know this the film has a scene where they're making monkey business at christmas when really it was in november you know that that sort of attitude and then there's the the exact opposite who says you know who cares about specific details when you know the idea is just to get you know to create an, an intriguing drama based on the you know the vague facts and so on and then there's the person in the middle who who I think is the most forlorn position who says, well, you know, if it if it gets people interested, if it makes people want to watch a Laurel and Hardy film, then it's all to the good. I mean, I can't imagine anybody with the best will in the world watching a biopic about Stan and Ollie unless they, they loved them. You know, what, you know look, at, look at a film like Chaplin, you know, which was like a, a very, very big, high profile movie. I can imagine lots of people going to that in the same spirit that they went to see 
Gandhi, you know, by the same director, and coming mm. away thinking, you know, well, well, that was interesting. There's much more to his life than I realised. What an interesting man. I can't imagine them going out the next day and renting the Gold Rush. You know, I just, I just don't think it works that way. And so my, my feeling is, I'm, I'm just not, I'm really not interested. I mean, I've looked at the trailers for Stan and Ollie. It looks pretty awful to me, to be honest. But I could well be wrong. But good, bad, or indifferent, I'm, it's it's just not something that interests me. If I want to know more about a screen comedian or a screen per- person star, uh, I'd much rather read a book. I, I don't I don't think that movies are the best way to to do that, and I think that they're inevitably compromised. Having said that, the Marx yeah. Brothers are are the exception. I don't think I could overcome the curiosity of of you know if there was a Marx Brothers biopic out. I would want to see it. And there's no reason why it couldn't be good, you know, on, on, on its own terms um, for all sorts of reasons. Obviously, the ones that were announced in the 1950s and the 1960s, I would very much uh, like to uh, to have seen come to fruition, particularly the 50s one where all five of the brothers were going to appear in, in a, a wraparound narrative, presumably Harpo was going to speak. We would have seen Gummo talking. Uh, there was a talk in some reports about them doing a comic sketch before it went into flashback with other actors. Um, obviously, that would have been priceless. Uh, I think Noah said somewhere that um, it would be fine as long as the cast were unknowns. I think that's a very important point that it, you know we don't want the distraction of people that we already know playing them. Um, but yeah. having said that, you know, it, it, I don't know. It, it, there's no reason why it couldn't be a good film. I mean, I'm very, very fortunate in that I've read the script that that got somewhere towards uh, being made uh, re- more recently by by Scott Alexander and uh, Larry Kurzuski. I've read that script, and it is it is very, very good. It starts with them as children. It goes through through their life, and it's full of sort of hints and suggestions of their work in movies not in a kind of heavy-handed oh that's where the, they got the idea from sort of a way but more as a kind of a as a little treat for fans you know they're just these references these hints of things that they did later worked into their life story and it's it's a really it's a really great script and i'd love to see that see that made but but basically biopics are not that you know they're they're not for me um Obviously, the other one that's that's in the in the air is raised eyebrows. The uh, the, the the film based on uh, Steve Stolia's memoir of the the elder Groucho uh, that is uh, the, you know attempts are being made to to make that with uh, Rob Zombie Rob Zombie directing. Um, <laughs> Robert, I'm not, uh, <laughs> yes, you know, Mr. R Zombie Esquire directing. Um, isn't it Robert S? It probably zombie? is, yes. Not to be confused with the other one, yeah. <laughs> zombie, comma, Robert. Um, but, but, I, 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 but the problem I have with that is nothing to do with the problem I have with the book. I think the book is, is a great book. I love Steve Stolia's book. But the point is, it, the Steve Stolia's book is about Steve Stolia. It's about a guy who goes, who, who is handed this unbelievable opportunity to work for this man that he that he hero worships, and the book is told in in his terms. He, the, the 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 authorial commentary is his. Mm. If you take that away and you just have the narrative, then you have a story that I think is unavoidably depressing. And the last thing I would want somebody who didn't know who Groucho was to see i think it 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 feeds into 
this this idea uh, that that if you're going to make a if you're going to make a film about a comedian, you start when things start to go wrong for them. You start when their career goes haywire or when they get old, and it's kind of what I call misery porn, and that seems to be the kind of the default. So I my my worry with raised eyebrows is is nothing to do with the book, which is excellent. It's just that it's unavoidable. That it's not going to be just an appallingly depressing story about a great man being, being you know marginalised and abused, but I'd love to, I'd love to see Scott and Larry's script made. It's 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 great. I'd love to see that. I've always been a bit wary of this because no matter how well a script is or a story is or a director is, you've really got to strike gold on the performer, and you know Chaplin did it with um, Robert Downey Jr. and I think he elevated that that film to be better than it actually was because of his performance. Now, to hit three strikes of gold to do the Marx Brothers, I think, is beyond uh, reasonable expectation. I don't think it can be done. You know, so I don't know whether I want to see the Marxes portrayed actually in their adult life performing. If, if, if something was going to be done, I'd love to see those early years. I'd like to see them as kids and maybe ending with them, you know, as I mentioned before, hitting it big on Broadway, maybe that's the end of the film. Because I think uh, people know the story from then on, or it's well documented. So maybe those early years, that's what I'd love to see uh, uh, portrayed. But to be honest, I think we're 20, 30 years beyond the point where that is a reasonable expectation to get a film like that made. I think the time to do that would have been in the 80s. Yeah, I agree that the early years are the most promising in terms of trying to make a, a biopic about the team. I also agree that biopics generally don't work out well, although there are some great ones. I, I do admire what Scott and Larry did with Man on the Moon. Um, they made a movie about a comedian, and they did very much what it seems you're describing, Matthew, what, what their Marx Brothers screenplay does, which is they sort of made this movie as though it had been made by its Yes, subject. exactly, yes. Um, and they, they didn't, yeah, they, they weren't like slaves to the chronology of, of Andy Kaufman's life, but they, they presented a Kaufman-esque version of his life. And uh, I think that's a very effective movie. Um, and I, I particularly admire the way they structured it as a piece of writing. Um, if a Marx Brothers biopic were in the offing, I would be... I'd be very excited, uh, especially about the possibility that it might uh, open many more people's eyes to the Marx Brothers and thereby, um, you know, help the, help the team bring them back to the to prominence in popular culture and uh, thereby help all of us with our Marx Brothers projects. I would also be scared out of my mind. I would be I would have such trepidation because it would be heartbreaking if there was a Marx Brothers biopic or or movie that dealt with them in some way. And it wasn't good. You know, it could it could hurt them in some way or it could turn them into the wrong kind of you joke. could play Groucho and. <laughs> well, that is a thing too. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think I could play his stage character quite well. I don't. I don't know if I could play the man. Now, I could play Sigruman. Um, that's yeah. yeah. You could. <laughs> the curtain, Mister Jeffrey, will look up again next season. <laughs> okay, that that's our next project. It's uh, don't point that beard at me. The Sigruman <laughs> story. <laughs> 
I will say um, I, the raised eyebrows, the prospect of a raised eyebrows movie. I uh, I share your high opinion of the book, Matthew. And in that case, I I would make an exception to the rule about unknowns. I think if you have four or three guys playing the Marx Brothers in character, you, you don't want established star personalities mucking that up. Uh, but a piece that's just about the older Groucho, sure, make it a tour de force for a, one of the great actors. I, that I could see. Morgan Freeman. Absolutely. <laughs> He's already played God. Groucho is all that's left. Can I read one more question here? I'm not even sure this is a question. No. Yeah. But, but I have to read this one. All right, ready? <laughs> I love Zeppo. I worship him. But he doesn't reply to any of my letters. For 42 years, I've been writing. But I will find them. I've secured all my life savings, and I'm going to America to find Zeppo. Nobody try and stop me. My mind is made up. But can you tell me where I can find them, please? <laughs> no, we're not going to tell you, uh, Anonymous. So. It's obvious that Zeppo doesn't like you. You know, actually, I'm the last person in the world that realized Zeppo was dead because when I fell in love with the Marx Brothers in 1983, the first book that I that I got hold of that told me more was a book called Movies of the 30s that was published in, I think, 1979, and I read it in 1983. And Zeppo was the one Marx Brother who was still alive at that point. And so I thought in 1983 that he was still alive, and it wasn't until... I got Halliwell's film goes companion in 1984 that I realized he was dead. So that was a real shock to me. I thought he was the one Marx brother that was still with us four years after he was dead. So I, I understand something of Anonymous's plight here, but uh, not, not quite enough to, uh, to, uh, to step in and, uh, and break the bad news. Well, why don't we tell Anonymous? We, we don't want to give you any of this personal information on the air. <laughs> But we'll call you yes. personally, and we'll tell you the answer where you can find him. <laughs> so we got a few other questions here that I'm going to give you 15 seconds combined to answer. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to run through these. Okay, will a print or negative of humor risk ever be found? No. Torres or Todd? What? <laughs> oh, oh, Torres or Todd? Uh, 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 Todd. Todd. One of each, please. If Love Happy could have been turned into a bona fide and funny Marx Brothers film, what changes would you have made? Uh, Taking Groucho out. The Marx Brothers would be in it. <laughs> would it be a terrible idea to make a new Marx Brothers film in the vein of the Farrelly Brothers Three Stooges movie or the Laurel and Hardy Mummy movie? No, it would be the, the most brilliant idea I've ever come across in my life. I can't imagine how that could fail. Roger Stevenson asks... I would like to hear your favorite scenes after you subjected us to your least favorite in episode number two. <laughs> <laughs> I like the uh, the um, the scene in Love Happy where <laughs> Chico says Tootsie Fritzie ice cream and walks off licking an ice cream as if as if mourning as if mourning his career. That would be the one for me. Strange interlude, I think, if I is is my favorite scene. For me, it's the bridge the bridge scene in Animal Crackers. Okay. Cinco Paul mm. writes, who are the contemporary heirs to the Marx Brothers comedy? I have no idea. Uh, contemporary, yeah. So. It's, it's kind of like the, you know, what other comedy team comes yeah. close. I, it's funny because I think every comedian is influenced by them, but I don't know that there's any direct heirs. People tend to answer with whoever is the current crazy comedian. 
um, you know, the most manic. Uh, like it, some years ago, it was Jim Carrey who was always being compared to them um, because he was so high energy. And but I don't know if I don't know. I tell you who I love is is Roberto Benigni, the the Italian comedian. Before he before he oh, yeah. sort of became a, a worldwide success with uh, with Life Is Beautiful. I mean, obviously the, the, the Marx Brothers aren't his key influence. He's very Chaplin-esque. He's very Keaton-esque. But uh, he has that craziness, that uninhibited craziness that I don't think it, it, yeah. you know I don't think Anglophone cinema really had since since the forties. And the final question. What triggered the Marxist move to Hollywood? Was it that they ran out of Broadway shows? The weather? Chico escaping deaths to the New York mobsters? What? I think it was Thelma Todd. Thelma, Thelma Todd was not in New York. <laughs> she simply wasn't there. She was in Los Angeles. They probably watched Seven Prints to Satan, and they thought, we need to move to Los Angeles and make two films with that woman. My theory's always been that they wanted to flee from Margaret Dumont and have somebody there who actually understood their jokes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do some housekeeping, boys. Let's say things like, The Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced and hosted by Matthew Conium, Bob Gassell, and Noah Diamond, and edited by Bob Gassell. Please join us in the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group and read the podcast blog at marxbrotherscouncilpodcast.com. You can also find us as individuals because the three of us, believe it or not, are individuals and you can contact us individually. You can learn more than you ever wanted to know about me and send me threatening messages at noahdiamond.com or find me on Twitter at Noah Diamond. And where can Conium and Gazelle fans get a hold of you guys? Um, they can find me on Facebook and they can find my, my Marx Brothers Council blog, you know, site thing. Um, or they can just shout really loudly. I'll probably hear. And I can be found at the closest White Castle or on Facebook. And anybody who wants to fork over a few bucks or chat about the Marx Brothers, let's do it. Anybody? Well, I do have a small block list. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anybody within reason. And just in case anyone is listening who may not know, the Marx Brothers Council is a Facebook group started by Matthew, and it is the world's greatest ongoing 24-hour-a-day Marx Brothers party, <laughs> full of people who love the Marx Brothers, lots of experts who are members of the group, and uh, notables who love the Marx Brothers and are part of the group. If you're a fan, you yes. must join us there because it is always a good time. And if you really like us... I was just going to say, hey, Noah, we, we have something in common that Bob doesn't have. I know, but he's happily <laughs> married anyway, and it doesn't seem to bother anyone. We've written books. Absolutely. Uh, Matthew is the author of The Annotated Marx Brothers, a filmgoer's guide to in-jokes, obscure references, and slide details. And I did the British details. <laughs> Very nice. Like that. Yeah. And that's me, Groucho, the solo career of Groucho Marx. And on other subjects, Egyptomania goes to the movies and Jane Austen inside her <laughs> novels. You should read them. Matthew is an excellent writer. And, and Noah has written um, a book about uh, his extraordinary experience of reviving the lost Marx Brothers movie. I'll say, uh, movie? Did I say movie? The lost Marx Brothers Broadway show, I'll Say She Is. 
uh, a wonderful book called Give Me a Thrill, which details uh, everything you need to know both about the original show and the revival. I've also written a book called Love Marches On, a saga of Broadway, and 400 Years in Manhattan, a tour guide's history. So you can find us online. You can my website. You can find my books. Uh, you can find Matthew's books on my website too. As a matter of fact, in the store section and at all good high street branches of Amazon. <laughs> yes, I like when people say, "Get them uh, wherever books are sold." <laughs> it's just a cop out. I don't know wherever Where, wherever, wherever really books. obscure books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> and my only creative Marx Brother endeavor is illegal, so we can't even talk about that. So, <laughs> But it's good. <laughs> <laughs> and just in case anyone's curious, Bob sells drugs to Marx Brothers fans. Yes, yes. <laughs> if it wasn't for Bob, I'd be asleep now. <laughs> so we got to do this at the end of every episode now? Every single one, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Boy. Do you think anyone is still listening at this point? <laughs> Eric Grayson. Yeah. yeah, thanks for all the questions. Sorry we couldn't get to all of them, but some of them were stupid. <laughs> we did We did all the good ones. If we didn't do it, it was rubbish. Oh, also, I should say, um, I mentioned Scott Alexander earlier um, as the co-author of an extremely good Marx Brothers biopic uh, script. Scott will be a future guest. Uh, if you don't know the Ooh. name, he and uh, Larry... Uh, hold on, I've dropped, my, I've dropped my pronunciation guide. Hold on a minute. Larry Karaszewski, uh are the authors of uh, what was that that one called Man in the Moon? Uh, Man on the Moon. People are starting Edward, so they're they're big deal Hollywood scriptwriters and directors. Uh, Scott Alexander will be a future guest on the Marx Brothers Council podcast. So if you thought this one was a bit of a waste of time, it was kind of three people just kind of rambling, uh, do stick with us because uh, Scott will be a guest very soon. And congrats to Scott for some big news. Oh, yes. Yes. He's made a Marx Brothers discovery, which we will get into at some future point. And if you come into the Marx Brothers Council, maybe you could learn about it. But uh, a Marx Brothers work that has been long lost might have been found. It's humor risk. No, it's not humor risk. It certainly is. <laughs> Heaven's sake. But it is good. Well, obviously, there's only one piece of music that could possibly end this particular episode of the Marx Brothers Council podcast, and we're going to start it right now. It's Hey Jude. Oh, God, not Tenement Symphony again. Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. She has eyes that folks adore so, and a torso even more. So Lydia, oh Lydia, that encyclopedia, oh Lydia, the queen of tattoo. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo, beside it the wreck of the Hesperus too. And proudly above waves the red, white, and blue. You can learn a lot from Lydia. La-da-da. She can give you a view of the world in tattoo If you step up and tell her where For a dime you can see Kankakee or Paris Or Washington crossing the Delaware
Lydia, oh Lydia, say have you met Lydia, oh Lydia the tattooed lady. When her muscles start relaxing up the hill comes Andrew Jackson. Lydia, oh Lydia, oh have you met Lydia, oh Lydia the champ of them all. She once swept an admiral clear off his feet. The ships on her hips made his heart skip a beat. And now the old boy's in command of the fleet. For he went and married Lydia. Lydia.